Um, there's an expression that's been used the last couple of Sundays that when we gather for the Lord's Day, this is referred to as the marketplace for the soul. And that has been really good to reflect upon, meaning we, we feast upon God's word, the means of God's grace to be built up, to endure whatever the next few days have for us, the coming week ahead. God is faithful to build up his people, to encourage his flock, to pour in by the power of the Spirit, to nourish our souls, and to be able to sit and stand and sing corporately and hear other brothers and sisters who are putting their hope in God in the midst of raging storms and, and, and know that that's a reality happening right now. Brothers and sisters, it really is a blessing to be together, to, to minister to each other when we sing God's word, when we sing corporately. I just don't want us to take this for granted. We have the privilege of continuing our study through the letter to the Hebrews. And if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it up to Hebrews chapter 11. As we continue to look at this by faith chapter, this morning we are going to read verses 8 through 19, but just make note that there's a lot packed into these verses that we will not get to all today, but Lord willing, uh, next Lord's Day, we, we will hopefully hit each part of this particular chapter. Hebrews 11, starting in verse 8. Please follow along as I read from God's word. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. 
He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Hear the word of the Lord. It should be pretty obvious, as we just read this passage, that this particular passage, we move from the the pre-patriarchs to really honing in on Abraham. And so the, the title of this sermon is The Father of the Faithful. Maybe in your mind, as we hear of Father Abraham, you start going into that Sunday school song, which I've set up here before. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you, so let's all praise the Lord, right? All of that should maybe be a good reminder to some of us. Hopefully, as we work through the father of the faithful, we will have a better understanding of what it actually means to have Abraham as our father in the faith. Some hear that song and they go, well, hold on, I'm not a Jew ethnically, so how could Abraham be the one who was the one, you know, the beginning of God's chosen people, how could I be part of his lineage by faith in Christ Jesus? And so we're going to hopefully understand this more. But last week, if you recall, we heard a description of faith, our grace verse this month, and three examples of faith in the lives of Abel, Enoch, and Noah. And I want to draw your attention to verse 7. So we've started our passage this morning in verse 8. But there's an expression contributed to Noah that I want us to see that I I pray will be a helpful helpful launching point as we look at our passage. The end of chapter, uh, of verse 7, it says, By faith Noah became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Now, there's an important point that I don't want us to miss that, that under or in the Old Testament, God's way of dealing with men and saving them is the same as in the New. Many read the Old Testament and almost feel like it is a different story, and then the New Testament is kind of plan B, a, a different engagement with God and people. The only, uh, sorry, not only is there only one way of salvation for everybody, but one way of salvation at all times also. When you hear this by faith, by faith, and we're hearing of those of old, you need to understand that there is only one way for a sinner, a rebel, to experience salvation, redemption, fellowship, communion with a holy and righteous God. By grace, through faith, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go. Abraham was called by God. I I don't want us to miss this because I I think this is going to help us understand that expression that we heard about Noah. He was an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So it was not that he inherited a righteousness that he earned by what he did. Because we read that he did a lot of things in obedience to God. But that's not how he became an inheritor of the righteousness. It came by faith. And so when we hear of Abraham's life story of faith, we need to understand that this man was once far from God 
and then called by God. Where was Abraham before he was called? It wasn't as if Abraham was this man who was following hard or running hard after God's own heart. He was living in Ur of the Chaldeans. Joshua chapter 24 gives us a little bit more insight, verses 2 and 3. And Joshua said to all the people, this is many years later, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan. And made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. I called him. I don't want us to miss this. This is the starting point. If you read the uh, Hebrews chapter 11 and you're going, oh man, these people did so many amazing things for God. Their lives were just um, amazing. We're, we're starting to elevate them. We have lost sight that it is only by faith meaning they are trusting wholly, they are completely dependent upon another in order to have the fruit of a life of obedience. So God called Abraham, one who was once a pagan worshiper, to himself to go. No doubt Abraham found himself serving other gods just like those around him until God's sovereign grace took hold of him and he experienced what we would say the effectual call. Think about this for a moment with me. Not only was the grace of God here very evident, but the sovereignty of his grace was displayed in singling out Abram, Abraham from the midst of all the people around him. Why? Why did God choose Abraham and not the others, not his kindred? Really, there is no other answer but this. Romans chapter 9, verse 18. He has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. God accepted Abel's offering, but not Cain's. He called Isaac and not Ishmael. He loved Jacob and hated Esau because he wills, and for no other cause that we know. Abraham was justified apart from works. Apart from saying, man, God must have, must have seen something in him, something that he was displaying in his life and said, that's the guy that I'm going to call out from idolatry. God's sovereign grace means that you are experiencing unmerited favor. You did not deserve it. You deserve something very different, just like Abraham when he was called by God. And so we see the first declaration really in Scripture of the doctrine of justification. And we find it in Genesis chapter 15 in one verse, verse 6. Now, in our, our passage in Hebrews 11, we're given examples of Abel's faith, of Enoch's faith, of Noah's, but Abraham in, in Scripture is the first example that gives us really the key insight to what it means to experience justification by faith alone. So we, we look at Genesis chapter 15, 
verses 1 through 6. I want you to hear the passage. After these things, this is after God had called him out. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And then there's a little bit of exchange between Abram and and God. And God, in verse 5, brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. God revealed himself to Abram. God told Abram the promises that he had. And this is the response. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. That one verse, tucked way back in Genesis 15, gives us that shining example of what what does it actually mean for someone to walk by faith? Well, first, that someone had to experience this, this justification by faith, this this uh, counting, to, counting it to him as righteousness. And so we see that Abraham, Abraham was justified in exactly the same way as we are justified. Abraham believed in God, believed in who God is, what he has promised to do. And really, brothers and sisters, that's exactly where we find ourselves. God has revealed himself in his word. He has revealed who he is and who we are, and his great plan of redemption that he, being a holy and righteous God, has made a way for sinners and rebels like us to experience salvation. It is through the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has revealed himself to us, and he has revealed his promises to us that if we repent of our sins and believe upon him, our sins will be washed clean, and we will experience the gift of eternal life and many other promises to those whom he has, he has given them to. The truth we heard last week, Hebrews eleven six, is something I want you to hear again. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Abraham heard from God heard the promises, and he believed. Now, while he could not fully grasp all that was to come with the promise of of the seed, the promise of the one who would come and redeem, he saw it from afar, and he believed. We live on the other side of the cross and resurrection, and it has been manifested in its fullness. So, where it once was given in promise form, we now have the full revelation that it is all culminating in Jesus Christ, our Lord. The word counted. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Could also be understood as reckoned unto him or imputed to him. Imputed means that something that wasn't in our account, so to speak, has been put there. For instance, this I think is helpful. The Apostle Paul says in writing to Philemon about Onesimus, he says that if this man, this slave of yours, has defrauded you, and if he owes you anything, put that down in my account, and I will repay it. The Apostle himself did not owe Philemon anything, but tells Philemon to put it in his account, to reckon it to him, to impute it to him, 
even though he did not owe anything. So for, for, for us to read, and he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him, God counted it to him as righteousness, this begins to help us understand what does it actually mean to be justified before God. When we approach God and have nothing in our hands to bring but filthy rags, the works that we think may make us right before him, God, by grace, puts into our account the righteousness of Christ. He reckons it to us. He imputes a righteousness that is not our own into our account. God clears out our account and gives us another's righteousness. Yes, we are then justified because God has pronounced, declared us righteous in his eyes. And we must remember that we are declared righteous not because of our own righteousness, but because of Christ's righteousness. That is what's been reckoned to us. Abraham was given God's grace to understand the way of justification is not by what you do, but through belief, through faith in the promised Redeemer. Now, you may be going, I don't see all of that in the passage. The Lord Jesus in John chapter 8 fills in the gap. John 8, 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So even though it was in germinal seed form, you're going, how did Abraham fully understand this redemptive plan that God would lay out in one day through his offspring, seed singular, send the Redeemer, the Messiah, that would make a way for those who are far off to be reconciled. He had a glimpse. He saw it from afar. And listen, he was glad. He rejoiced to know that God called him and would use him, work through him to be part of this seed coming who would bring redemption to his people. It is extremely significant that Matthew begins his gospel account stating the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. God's promise to send a savior began all the way back in Genesis 3.15 with the seed of the woman. It was repeated in the covenant with Abraham. It was repeated in the covenant with David. And it was fulfilled in Christ and Christ alone. That's the covenant of grace promised of old and fulfilled in Christ. All whom God justifies by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is the single, only way of salvation that is operated from the beginning. Anybody that is listed in Hebrews chapter 11, living by faith, this has been progressively revealed throughout God's revelation to us all culminating and leading to Christ and what he accomplished. So all the preceding covenants were typical. They were preparatory for for the one who would come and fulfill all that was promised. We hear this in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. The one that was promised is now realized so that those who are called may receive the promised inheritance. 
the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So Abraham looked beyond God's immediate promise to something of far greater significance. He lived by faith. What I want us to see, what is relevant to us, is that this living by faith was not just a one-time decision that Abraham made, and then everything else that, ex- that he experienced in his life was just kind of the after effects of that. A lot of times we, we fall into this line of thinking that, that Christianity is just kind of an altar call type of religion or make a decision type of religion. You've done it once in the past, then you're kind of good from then on out. That is not biblical saving faith. And we see that in Abraham's example. He lived by faith. That means he believed and trusted and he continued to believe and trust all that God is and all that God had promised to him. We've got to understand that that is the call, that is the DNA, the life of a follower of Christ. It is not just this kind of asking Jesus into your heart and then anything else that happens afterwards is just kind of added on or a benefit. Saving faith receives Jesus in order to go on trusting him. And so it is this ongoing, enduring faith in God and his promises that really Hebrews 11 is laying out before us. The whole of our Christian existence From the time of being born again by the Spirit until the time that we are transformed and glorified and given a resurrection body, it is all walking by faith and not by sight. But what we sang a little bit earlier, if you caught the lyrics, it's not always going to be walking by faith and not by sight. We will one day see all that we have been walking by faith towards. And really, when, when we look at saving faith, it is... It is a life of ongoing trust and obedience. That old hymn, trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. There's no other way to actually live out faithfully unto the Lord unless you trust and obey. I know that sounds maybe trite to some of you, like a Sunday school response, but as we look at the father of faith, He is called to go to a place he does not know. And by faith, he trusts and obeys. And that's not just one episode. That's that's the thing. It's not just this one event. This is the ongoing reality of those who are called by God to trust and obey. And so, really, from Genesis 12 to 25, we see the life of Abraham laid out, and in our, our passage this morning, we see basically three periods of his life. How he demonstrates his faith by leaving his homeland for an unknown land of promise, which I hope we will be able to look at thoroughly today. Then we see his faith being demonstrated concerning the seed that was promised to him, his offspring. And then lastly, concerning the sacrifice that he is called to make of the son that God had promised him. And Lord willing, we will look at those two aspects, uh, two periods of his life next Lord's Day. But I, I wanna just help us to, to be reminded of where we've been and where we are now 
Abraham's faith is giving light. It's, it's an illustration of what we've read earlier about a description of faith. Abraham's faith is gripped by who God is, and it is gripped or transfixed on, on the promises that God has made. This is how his whole life is oriented. God has spoken. I trust what he has spoken about himself is true. The one who promises is faithful. He has told us that. I believe it. I will stake my life upon it. All the promises that he has made, I will believe those, trust in those, and walk it out. He trusts and he obeys. Faith gives God's promises a present reality in the soul. Even if they pertain to the future, our life is shaped and molded according to those promises. And if you remember in what we'll see in his life, those future promises actually inform his present reality. This is living by faith. God has revealed himself in his word. We trust him. He has given us promises, promises that we may only see from afar, but those promises are as true as the word spoken by him, and that reality actually shapes our, our present experience. That, that is a gift that God gives his people. It is the gift of faith to actually hear the word spoken or read it. You believe it, you stake your life upon it, and then you live that out. That is living by faith. And Abraham is a wonderful example of this life. Here, verse 8 again, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Remember, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith trusts in God's word. Things not seen is illustrated in Abraham's departure, not knowing where he was going. The Lord had called, called him to simply go and trust. Abraham obeyed and went out. There are, there are two things here that I want you to hear or to grasp or to catch. He obeyed. That signifies the consent of his mind to what he has been told. And then he went out. It tells of an actual obedience. It's not just giving mental assent to what God has said and say, well, in my mind that, you know, that sounds theoretically good. It's actually then walking it out in obedience. There is actual performance. He obeyed not only in word, but in deed. Abraham's response to his family and friends, if we could just for a moment enter into this, okay, you have you have, we're told, he had lots of herds and, and valuables. He had, uh, he had possessions. He had a place, a dwelling place. God calls him to go. His friends ask, well, okay, Abraham, you're leaving. Where are you going? This is how he responds. I don't know, but God does. He didn't actually say that. I don't know what he actually said, but, but the, the reality of his life is that response. I, I actually don't know, but I'm trusting one who does. And when you think about that response, I wonder how close that is to your life of following the Lord. 
like, is that super foreign to you or have you experienced seasons in your life, times in your life where you have had to be in that same spot, that same kind of posture of responding to people on the outside who are looking in and going, why are you doing that? Why, why would you leave this to go there? Why would you disfellowship with this person to go and hang out with this person? The world is governed by senses, not faith. The world lives to please self, not God. And A.W. Pink says this, he penned these convicting words, if the world does not deem you and me crazy, then there is something radically wrong with our hearts and our lives. Reading that quote and then reflecting on my own life this last week did bring conviction. How many there are who profess to be God's people, yet only obey him so long as they consider that their life their own interests, their own lives are being served by obedience. Can you say in your life that the world would view what you do as crazy? Or would you just kind of sink in with the rest of culture and civilization and not in any way, shape, or form stand out as one who is called to live in a different way? God requires us to commit ourselves fully unto him, trusting his faithfulness, his wisdom, his power, and actually yielding to every demand that he makes upon our lives. Obedience amounts to trusting God even when things don't look the way you think they should. I think his example, Abraham's life living by faith, is so helpful here. Because a lot of times we expect that if we obey God, if we trust God, then God will validate that in our lives by giving us some kind of immediate response, some earthly manifestation, some satisfaction that will, that will clue us in that what we have done is right and good and he has blessed us in our obedience. And yet, this is not the way Abraham's life lived by faith unfolds. I encourage all of us to go back and read Genesis 12 and the, the following chapters and just really think about this. God has called him to go. He goes not knowing exactly where he is going. When he arrives in the place of promise, he does not get to set roots down. He's living temporarily in a tent. And it's not just for a little while. If you look at this long stretch of his life, the years and years and years of being a stranger in exile, an alien in the place of promise, it starts to shed light that his trusting and obeying did not translate into the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel of this instant blessing that you see because you did the right thing. But as we, as we also were able to sing together, all the difficulties, all the trials God sovereignly orchestrates. And it is not to push his people away from him, but to make his people rely upon him, to trust him with everything, every fiber of our being when, according to the senses, it does not make sense. The circumstances seem so out of whack, so wrong, so difficult, and yet God has said 
and I trust him. Brothers and sisters, I'm not standing up here preaching to you saying, don't you get it? Why aren't you doing it? This is difficult, and it exposes our complete and utter dependence upon God in every sphere of our life. There is not a nook or cranny, some place in your life where you think, man, I can, I can in this arena pull up my own bootstraps and do it in my own strength. He is wiping us, knocking us down our pride so that he may build us back up into the people he wants us to be, those who are utterly dependent upon him. You've got to understand this. This was, this was pre-fall. God created man and woman in his image to be dependent upon him. God is glorified when we are satisfied and in need of him to be everything we need in this life. He is exalted when we cry out, Lord, I need you. And we run to him and him alone for our refuge and our strength. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, verse 9, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Here we behold the patience and steadfastness of faith in waiting for the fulfillment of the promise. Again, not an acre did Abraham own of the land God promised him. Just kind of let that sit in. He, he had to purchase. He had to pay for a plot of the land in order to bury his own family. The land of promise he had to purchase just to to have a burial place for his dead. Some may see this, um, some may say this presents a difficulty for those who walk in his footsteps by faith, but really it only enhances the beauty and accuracy of this hope. So some read his example of faith and go, hold on, something's out of whack. He must have done something wrong, some kind of disobedience to experience this kind of hardship. And yet, the by faith examples are to help us see that this is our pilgrimage. This is our plight. If you have bought into a, a false Christianity that is providing, if you believe, it is smooth sailing until Christ returns. You don't grasp what God is up to in our lives in sanctification. To bring glory to himself and to conform us more and more into the image of his son. He is working all things together for our good. The Christian pilgrimage very often looks like many years of fighting your way through a hostile world, the flesh, and the devil where you will no doubt face many discouragements and receive many wounds. Hard duties to perform, difficulties to overcome, and trials to endure before Christians enter fully into the inheritance unto which divine grace has appointed. A biblical faith, a saving faith, divinely given and maintained, is sufficient for these things. There's also this slogan that God will never take you 
into a place that you're not ready to endure. I probably botched that, but you know what I mean. God's never going to take you down a road that's too hard for you. And I want us to just read the story of Abraham, his living by faith, and understand his grace is sufficient in our weaknesses. He is glorified when we are brought low and depend upon him. And as he brings us through, his grace being sufficient to carry us, to hold us, he is glorified. He is honored by all of those who witness what he has done in sustaining us even through that particular trial or hardship. Abraham, by faith, sojourned for more than half a century in a strange land. Here is a question to ponder. What occupies your mind when you're going through trials of various kinds? For Abraham, his faith rested upon the plain word of him that cannot lie. He was not occupied with the Canaanites who were in the land, but the faithful God who pledged that land to him. It reminds me of what the Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. As you heard that passage read, what pops in, in my mind is this reality. Christ is your life. Christ is your life. So where should your mind be set? Not here in the circumstances you're dealing with, but if your mind is set on above, you are transfixed on who he is and what he has promised, and that is living by faith. How do we explain that when Abraham finally arrived in the land of promise, he only sojourned there as a stranger and exile, as in a foreign land? In other words, how can Abraham have received the land of Canaan as an inheritance when it was the country in which he led no settled existence and to which he made no claim of ownership? This is where I want us to kind of spend the remainder of our time thinking about this. The text provides its own explanation in verse 10. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So the city that God builds is an eternal city. They, they all who died in faith, we read a little bit later in our passage, desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. So here's the question, what is this city? As we look at scripture in Hebrews and then a little bit later in Revelation, we are, we're told, we're given the picture of this city. It is that city which God has prepared for them, mentioned again in Hebrews 12, 22, as the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Also Hebrews 13, 14, where we read, 
here, that is, on this present earth, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. This surely refers to the heavenly Jerusalem of Hebrews 12.22, the, the city which has foundations. But here is the crucial key. In Revelation chapter 21, in verses 1 and 2, especially in verse 2, we read that the Apostle John saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God onto the earth. The reason then why Abraham was a sojourner and an exile in Canaan was that because was because he viewed that earthly land really as a type of the heavenly and more substantial land to come. The land of Canaan pointed beyond itself, but not, I want you to hear this, but not to some non-physical, non-earthly spiritual domain out somewhere in the clouds. The land of Canaan, the promised land, pointed instead to the new heavens and the new earth. This is the visual image that we hear about in Revelation. We hear that God's holy Jerusalem will come and actually in the new heavens and new earth become the reality in which all those who have experienced the resurrection in Christ upon his return get to experience forever. Earthly, real, resurrected, glorified heavens and earth. For many of us, we think heaven once we die and our, our souls and body are separated, we will for eternity be in that, in that place. But really, the Bible describes that as an intermediate state. Is it glorious? Yes. The Apostle Paul declares how much better it would be to be with Christ face to face. But you've got to understand, as Abraham was seeing far off, there was actually a hope in the land that he never got to inhabit an even more glorified, excellent experience of the new heavens and the new earth. The promised land not just being a, a particular locale here on earth, but the new heavens and new earth that we as God's children, children of Abraham, by grace, through faith, experience for all of eternity. Now just pondering that reality... Abraham may be only a glimpse of that glory, but enough where that future hope informed his present experience and radically changed the way that he lived as an alien and sojourner. He never experienced that promised land in the land of Canaan. Yet, his spiritual eyes were so fixed upon the promises of God that his present reality was radically transformed, and he lived by faith. Abraham's expectation of permanent and perfect blessing in the heavenly city enabled him to submit patiently to the inconveniences and disappointments during his pilgrimage in Canaan. Abraham walked by faith, setting his hope again on what God had promised. And by God's grace, that so radically impacted his life in the, presence that, in the present that he was able to, to actually honor and glorify the God, God by trusting and obeying. 
See, God's purpose from the beginning of creation has always been that he would dwell forever with his redeemed, glorified people on a redeemed and glorified new earth. And so God makes promises to his people. His promises shape our present reality. Faith is taking what God has said to heart. Faith gives God's promises a present reality in our souls. And so we live in that reality of what God has said, even though we cannot yet see it and maybe have not yet experienced it. Our faith is always grounded in and focused on on God's sweet and glorious promises to us. And so in closing, I just want you to hear a few promises that he has made to his people. Isaiah chapter 40. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. From Isaiah 41, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous righteous right hand. And then a few in the New Testament, Philippians 4.19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And then lastly, Philippians 1.6. And I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, what grace you have lavished upon us to experience redemption in Christ and Christ alone. Father, we praise you for your special revelation. You have revealed yourself to us you have made known to us our great need of a Savior. And you have made known to us what you have provided through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we praise you for the gift of faith, your sovereign grace working in our lives that outside of that work, that miracle of the new birth, we would still be dead in our trespasses and sins. But because of your miraculous work, We who were once dead are now alive in Christ. Father, if there are those in this room this morning who do not know, who do not know you as the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who sustains, the God who is right, just, holy, and true, and the God who has sent his Son out of great love for sinners to redeem. May this be the day of repentance of sin and belief in the Lord Jesus. And Father, as we have been working through Hebrews chapter 11, 
Help us. Help us, we pray, to walk by faith and not by sight. Help us to glean from these examples and to be reminded again and again it is because of your great work that any of us can live in this trust and obedience. Father, may the anchor of our soul be steadied upon the glorious truth that he who has promised is faithful. Let us cling to that truth, that hope, and to Christ our King we pray. Amen. Amen. Please stand as we sing.